There's an ad campaign out there right now entitled, He, that is Jesus, He Gets Us. Regardless of what you think about those ads, Mark chapter 5 taught us, Jesus gets us. We witnessed Jesus interact with a demon-possessed man, a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, and a father who lost his little girl. And in those interactions, we learned, Jesus understands us. And in understanding us, he does not turn away in disgust, but draws near to us and draws us near to him through his word. This week in chapter 6, we learn from Jesus to deal with opposition. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, sometimes we feel like sheep among wolves. Help us to remember, Good Shepherd, that you are always with us. Amen. Chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. If you were to go to Patrick Mahomes' boyhood town of White House, Texas, and start asking around, I'm guessing you would find lots of people who would say, Yeah, I know Patrick. Went to high school with him. My sister and his sister were best friends. Watched him play high school football. Used to play cards with his parents. You would find lots of people who would be proud of their connection to the hometown boy made good. That's how it was, in a way, with Jesus in Nazareth. Word of Jesus' popularity had filtered back to his hometown, Nazareth. They were proud he was one of them. They said, he grew up down the street from me. His sisters still live around here, nice people, ordinary folks. Mary and Joseph's oldest boy. He did some carpentry work for me once. They were proud of him, proud of their connection with him. So on the Sabbath, Saturday the leaders of the synagogue asked Nazareth's famous son to come forward to read from the scripture and deliver the sermon. Remember, this was the synagogue Jesus attended as a boy, a teenager, a young man. The worshipers that day were people who knew him well. But that familiarity had a dark side. Jesus read Isaiah's words about the promised Savior. And then as he explained and applied those words, He said that the prophecy had been fulfilled right now, right in front of their eyes, that he was that promised Savior. To know him only as the son of Mary and as the older brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, to know him only as a wise teacher was not to know him at all. 
He was sent by God to rescue them from the punishment their sins deserved. Well, you can guess how they reacted. They did not offer him the key to the city. They did not rename Main Street Jesus, son of Joseph Way. No, how dare he? The kid who grew up down the street, how dare he claim to be the Messiah? Luke, in his account, tells us that their rejection of his message was so strong, they tried to murder him right then and there. What happened to Jesus can also happen to us. People who know us best, sometimes because of their familiarity with us, don't want to hear our witness. What do we do then? Well, what did Jesus do? Don't give up. Disappointed as Jesus must have been, the rejection at Nazareth did not keep him from continuing to teach. In fact, he took another step in sending out the twelve. Verse 6 continues. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Why two by two? Well, travel was dangerous, and it was customary in those days to travel in pairs. But I think there is another reason. Why travel in twos? Because we need encouragement. We need someone to speak the word of God to us. We need someone to pick us up when we have stumbled, to raise our spirits when it seems there has been little success. By the way, that's one of the great blessings of marriage, isn't it? Someone to walk alongside and encourage us on the way. The Bible tells us that doing miracles was one of the marks of the apostles. Jesus gave the twelve the authority to cast out demons so that people would know these disciples were representing him. Jesus was giving instructions for this particular trip, not universal commands for every missionary, every pastor. But there are some applications for us. They were not to take along extra provisions. An extra shirt, more literally an extra tunic, was used to cover up if sleeping outside at night. They were not to take one. Jesus is assuring them that their needs for food and shelter would be met along the way by those who received their message. Still today, congregations financially support their called workers. And called workers trust that Jesus will provide through his people. They are not to look for the best houses at which to stay. Hey, who has the nicest accommodations? Who serves the best food? This was not a vacation. Rather, than they, rather, when they are taken in as a guest, they were to stay until it was time to move on to the next town. Finally, Jesus did not hide from them that some would reject their message. In those cases, they were to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. To shake off the dust was a great insult. It indicated, 
I do not want to be touched by what you touch. You have rejected our preaching. That means you and all that's yours are outside the kingdom of God, and I will not be associated with that. It was the strongest of warnings. When our witness is rejected, how do we respond? With a, greet the devil for me when you get there? Well, maybe in extreme cases. But even that is not to be a final condemnation, as though that were up to us, or or something that we would take some perverse satisfaction in. No, rather, our warning is just that. It's a strong and loving warning of the danger they are in. Just a note on the anointing with oil. Olive oil was commonly used as a soothing treatment of different kinds of illnesses. The disciples were were simply following local customs, local practices. It would be reading something into Scripture to say that Jesus is telling us here that we should be anointing people with oil or that somehow oil has spiritual properties. That goes way beyond the text. Verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Herod's fear that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead introduces us to a flashback, verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. A little background here. This is Herod, who is known as Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who ordered the slaughter of the baby boys at Bethlehem. Herod Antipas, this Herod, who was married, visited Rome, met the beautiful and ambitious Herodias, who was the daughter of his half-brother. Yes, that makes her his niece. Herodias was also married to another of Herod's half-brothers, so that makes him his his sister-in-law. But Herod and Herodias decided to desert their spouses and get married, which, as you can imagine, becomes the talk of Galilee when Herod returns home. And John the Baptist publicly points out how this is wrong on so many levels, which enrages Herodias. Herod, to make his wife Herodias happy, imprisons John, but doesn't kill him, probably because he's afraid and likes listening to John, which doesn't make Herodias happy. So Herodias is looking for revenge. Verse 21, finally the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. 
When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Women did not attend these kinds of parties unless they were prostitutes, which explains why Herodias was not there, and also makes her daughter's presence and dance all the more creepy. Having your stepdaughter perform an erotic dance at such a party, as shameful as that was, pleased Herod and his guests, the leading men of Galilee. Herod here shows how weak he really is by being more concerned about going back on his word and what that might mean to his reputation than he's concerned about doing what is right. James Voltz, in his commentary on Mark, suggests that the gruesome addition of asking for John's head on a platter was the girl's way of mocking her stepfather, saying, in effect, let's make this a really wicked dinner party. A faithful servant of God, violently killed by order of a disgusting, wicked king, and the wish of two evil women. How do we respond to that? How do we respond today when it seems that those who are faithful to their calling suffer and those who despise God and his word are doing just fine? We need to take a longer view. Remember where John the Baptist is right now, at his Savior's side, in glory that will never end. He died confident of his salvation in Christ, and now he has his reward in heaven. Herod, Herodias and her daughter, they are the ones we should pity. For as far as we know, they are in horrible torment that will never end. This chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel is a difficult chapter. Being a witness for Christ often results in opposition. But when Jesus faced opposition, he didn't give up. And he didn't use his power to destroy. With his help, we can focus on the work he has given us and the blessings he has promised us. Next week, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and rescues his disciples in a storm, strengthening their faith, and as we study it, ours as well. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.